Lord God, for many of us, it's a holiday season. And yet we see in some of those images the frantic quality of life that many inhabit, and often enough we see around us. And as we see the the flocks of sheep without a shepherd, we pray tonight that we may have renewed confidence, not only in the comfort of the cross of Jesus Christ for ourselves, but the comfort that he can bring to those who look up and are not yet satisfied. So renew our confidence in your word, we pray tonight. Amen. And do please turn to Isaiah and to chapter 53. It's on page 740 of the Church Bibles. Uh, Last week, uh, Natalie and I were away. Some friends had booked caravans next to a Christian conference in Minehead, and we joined them. I have to say that we really went uh, to be with the friends and to see our godson. But we did attend a few things at the conference, and I was concerned. It was all very professional. It was all very well done. But what I heard coming... Uh, as a basic message from the platform was this. We, who are organizing this, know that you who attend it are exhausted. You feel battered and drained. So this conference is a chance to uh, remind yourselves that you do still believe it all. The emphasis seemed to me to be on surviving rather than on thriving. Uh, And their marketing is very good indeed. So if that's where they aimed the conference, chances are that they were right in assessing the mood that's out there. Well, it isn't an accident that we come to Isaiah 53 tonight here on the borders of Holy Week with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in our sights next Friday. But planning it, I don't think I realised how desperate, if those organizers of the conference are right, how desperate the situation is that faces us and the entire body of believers in the West. If those organizers are offering a true analysis, then it's partly because we've lost confidence in what is going on at the cross of Jesus Christ. Lost confidence in it as something we hold out to the world, and we saw the the flashing pictures of the world just then, something we hold out to the world as the only answer to its problems, and now even perhaps losing confidence in it for ourselves. And I'm not going to go through tonight's reading in great detail, uh, section by section. I'm afraid I'm, I'm actually going to take for granted what seems to be true at first glance, that Isaiah 53 is a prophecy ahead of time of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, a death that was for others and was immediately understood as being for others. Even at the beginning of uh, his adult career in teaching, John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
This death of Jesus was in some way for others, so that, as uh, Isaiah 53 puts it, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The first thing I want to say is that I suspect Isaiah expected this chapter to astonish us. I think it partly astonished him. Do you remember the background problem? The people of God are feeling utterly cast down, but Isaiah has gone to them with God's message that, yes, there has been judgment, but that any judgment upon them is because of their sinfulness. And because it's on their sinfulness, it will have an end. It will not be final. God has not changed his mind. He simply had to encounter the sin of his people. And so, at the beginning of chapter 52... Uh, Yes, back over the page. God says, and and it's echoing words that have come through before, Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Awake and discover, uh, verse 2, that you are being freed from the chains upon your neck. A great victory is on its way. Verse 7 of chapter 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, the peace of victory, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Well, enough of the build-up. We come to the main passage, which was uh, on uh, that clip, uh, verse 13 of chapter 52, and then through all of chapter 53. We hit that main passage with an immediate recognition then that if that is the background, then this great arm of the Lord, this great victory, astonishingly, is going to come from a great conqueror who will be disfigured. A great champion who is nonetheless only a mortal man. If there were nothing else to say, then Isaiah would already be inviting us to be astonished. This is going to be the final. It's the ultimate victory. But it will be a man who does it, and he will have a grave. He will die. That's the first thing to say. Isaiah finds it an astonishing claim. And so it's not surprising that we can pass on from that astonishment to examine a set of objections that there can be to the claims of Christian faith that this deliverer from sin was one Jesus from Nazareth. And I want to consider two deep objections, because if that conference is right, we need to renew our confidence. The initial objection that I certainly encounter when I'm in conversation with others is the whole notion that a sentence of death is the appropriate response from God to sin. Let me say that again. I encounter a deep hostility to the idea that the sentence of death is an appropriate response from God to the problem of sin in humankind. And that's why I ask that we have part of the story of the first murder, Cain's murder of Abel. The last executions in the United Kingdom happened in 1964. 
That's the last time that we have seen in this country the state convinced that aside from reforming character, aside from deterring others, there was a simple dread sentence for a dreadful crime of murder. We reckon that we've moved on from that. Perhaps we've been right to do so. But it means that it's harder, 50 years on, for us to enter into the thought world of Scripture. Because in that world, the sentence of death is an appropriate response for all human sin. Why? Because God is loving. Sounds odd. But listen to that story of Cain and Abel. God is passionately loving so that human life is in his hands, and to attack human life is to deprive him of his rights. Remember what it says, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. That is a loving God whose love is not destroyed by death. And then we have the Abraham story of the near sacrifice of Isaac. It's a story that is a horror to the modern mind. But the story is there partly to insist that if God is God, then there can be no favoritism about this sentence. In the New Testament, St. Paul says, all have sinned. And he might have pointed to that story, that the sin of Abraham and Isaac leads to the most appalling sentence as human community, even human family, are destroyed by necessary justice. Interestingly, a sheep is found as the replacement sacrifice. Or consider again the story of uh, the prophet Nathan coming to King David a thousand years before Jesus. The story tells us that the natural reaction to the abuse of the vulnerable is what King David says when he doesn't know the story is about him yet, that the man who does this deserves to what? To die. And Prophet has told a story of a lamb slain, and it's at the heart of the story. It's written into God's moral character to sentence all sin to death. Because God gave life to all those who are abused by sin. But it's also in God's character always to provide a substitute. Now, I think that objection is, is deep in our world today. But I think it's also mostly just felt And I think there's a second objection that is more precisely expressed. Again, it's about God's moral character, except this objection runs now that where one objection forgot he'd even have a moral character, this one says, no, he's actually got an immoral character. Because after all, how can responsibility for sin be transferred from one agent to another? So the story of the Passover lamb and goats is that the sin of the Egyptians in oppressing their slaves, the Hebrew people, would be uh, punished by death. But 
that the Hebrew people themselves would escape by uh, smearing on their doorposts while they sheltered inside, by smearing on the doorposts the blood of sheep once again. There is a transfer to another, in this case again, to sheep. And the problem is this, how is that fair? Perhaps you've heard the story that preachers tell of the judge who passes sentence and then steps down uh, from his uh, high seat to pay the fine of the man condemned in the courtroom. The judge himself pays the price. It's touching. But isn't it fundamentally unfair? That's the objection. Consider it just as a principle. How can it be fair for the righteous to pay the penalty for the unrighteous? I've heard the problem put like this. Imagine I have a spotless driving record. Right now, John. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) He obviously knows too much. I haven't always had a spotless driving record, but let us imagine that I have a spotless driving record. I'm driving my car with my permission on my insurance. You crash my car into a tree. I was righteous. You were guilty. But I pay the increased premium. It happens. But is it fair? You get off scot-free and I have to pay. And so, of course, when we read that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, then again we have to ask, and we understand why others ask, is this fair? Someone may say, well, it may not be fair, but at least it's loving. But is it? Is it fair of God to take the punishment that should have been mine and yours and smack it down on top of Jesus? What about this great moral character that God is supposed to have, punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty? It makes a nonsense of things. Well, I'm conscious that it may seem that I'm making heavy weather of this, but consider an example. Only a very few days ago, the Pope said this. And I actually had to go to the Vatican Radio website to confirm the English translation, because he he departed from his text to say it. I feel compelled to personally take on all the evil which some priests have done, to personally ask for forgiveness for the damage they have done. Now consider your situation if you are an abused child. Would you feel able to do what he asks? To transfer the guilt of the priest who abused you onto the person of the Supreme Pontiff in Rome? I don't think that though his motives, I'm sure, are generous and caring, I don't think that holds up. And yet it is exactly what we say is happening in Isaiah 53 and on the cross of Jesus Christ. Guilt is transferred from me to him. If it doesn't strike us as incredible, 
then I fear it's because we sort of reckon our sin isn't as bad as child abuse, so it's somehow easier. Well, that's a nonsense that you recognize as nonsense the moment you take it out and look at it. But it's what we feel. Our sin isn't as bad as that, so we can sort of understand Isaiah 53. But if our sin is as bad as that, if the sin that's in my heart tonight is as bad as child abuse, and it is the claim of every Christian preacher that all sin is the same, then what sense does it make? How fair can it be to transfer guilt from one who should face it to another who shouldn't? So those are the two objections. The first, that sin should not attract a death sentence in the first place. The second, that it can never be morally right to transfer guilt. And I suspect that part of the desperation that those conference organizers detect in their Christian audience is this very anxiety that while we can quote the scriptures, some of us can quote Isaiah 53 from memory. Some of us even hear it uh, from Handel. Nonetheless, we've no confident answer to the world's moral objections to the story of what Jesus has done. So when the world operates by its entirely reasonable morality, evil is relative, guilt is not transferable, we feel at sea. And I feel particularly for those of you who are now at school or at college, because you're being taken through a system in which almost everything has become relative. There are no absolutes. You're not allowed to say any of this stuff. And so in your world, you will encounter the notion that we don't even go near the cross of Christ because it's simply absurd. So it's my job tonight in the time that remains to try to respond to those important objections and bring us back safely to land if we feel at sea. About the first objection, I've got very little to say. And if anyone this very day accuses Christians of adopting a self-righteous attitude to sin, of failing to to appreciate that if only we understood everything and everyone, then we'd forgive everything and anyone, then I would only reply to them, Casey Hambleton. Another little child with serious injuries has died today. And it seems at the hand of man. There comes an end to the understanding. And we need to hear again. Your sister Casey's blood cries out to me from the ground. Someone, we say, hears those cries. And we call him God. And where our justice cannot reach, there remains an arm that can. In our own time, it seems, the very meaning of the word God has changed to one who's perhaps a force for creation, to one who's allowed to be an emotional force for love. But that he should have a blazing moral character in which love wants to protect others from the harm that I might do to them, that is now less known to insist that all sin brings death is only a problem if we try to avoid it for ourselves. If we try to say, well, except my sin, and say it's only really bad people for whom it's true. No, it's true for me and it's true for you. To refute this objection, 
we need to go on to the attack and assert that our times have not become more forgiving, just more flabby. The second objection is genuinely harder. But it functions by forgetting that guilt is not a thing that you can slap down on another. It's an aspect of a relationship. Let's go back to the car crash. Now imagine that I am the father of two sons who are drivers. Without my permission, they take and crash my car. Between them, amnesia and drink means that they cannot actually remember who was driving at the time. It's open to me to make them pay. But I know that they have different characters. One of them, if forgiven, is likely to walk away saying, cheers, Dad, and carry on his ways. The other is likely to take very seriously what it has cost me and is likely to become a reformed character. To remit, to cancel any punishment for the sake of the first son would seem immoral. I've taken the penalty for no conceivable moral gain. But to cancel the punishment for the sake of the second, or to undergo the punishment myself, the cost myself, for his sake, would seem much more hopeful, because the nature of the relationship invites him into a changed life. The parallels aren't exact, but they are telling. And one exact parallel is found in the woman, the story of the woman taken in adultery. You'll know it. She should be stoned, according to Jewish law. But she is not. She could walk away saying, cheers, Jesus, but she does not. Every indication in the story is that she takes him completely seriously when he says, finally, go now and leave your life of sin. Let me try and find another way in. Uh, Consider Isaiah uh, 53 again and verse 4, but probably not the first bit of that that you'd go to. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. For Jesus to take our sins, transgressions, and iniquities is an extension of a relationship in which he carries our sorrows. Surely every one of us knows what that means, don't we? To share in the sorrows of another is to enter with them into their anguish, into their pain. We prayed for those in difficulty tonight. Perhaps there's the pain of bereavement. We enter into their sorrows. We do it many times. And Isaiah presents the further extension to sin, iniquity, and transgression as a natural extension of someone who carries grief and sorrow. It's relational. He seems to see the whole matter as governed by a relationship between the innocent who does suffer and the guilty on behalf of whom the suffering takes place. There is no sense here of a crude slab of punishment being smacked down immorally upon a bystander victim, with Jesus somehow as the loving, uh, the, Jesus as the loving Christ uh, and the, uh, an angry father on the other hand. Instead, this text, chapter 53, breathes the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 
The nature of the relationship, in other words, changes everything about the analogy, about the story of what's going on in chapter 53. And if my guilt is taken by the one who made me, by one who is wise before me, and this is what the chapter says, by one who has saved his people again and again, and we've heard those stories, then there is not a moral offense, but a moral freedom that springs from my being set right, justified, as verse 11 puts it. The very character of God, deep, deep down, is, it turns out, a burden-bearing, grief-sharing God. It always has been. We can't objectify it into some abstract punishment, abstractly laid upon Christ. The simple truth is this. If guilt is a crude slab of punishment looking for somewhere to land, then the objectors are right. But if guilt comes from breaching a relationship with God, my maker then a relational solution makes perfect sense. And that is offered to me in the character of a God who rejoices to be holy and loving and enacted for me in the story of a God who will in his own offspring, verse 10, bear the guilt and bring me to life and to light because that's who he is. And so I recommend that you go back to this chapter and read the story of it once again and realize that some of the the, the simplicities we've learned for the sake of explanation may not help us to get at this character of a God who has always been a burden-bearing, grief-sharing God. Well, we're going to finish. From time to time, I am asked about my master's that I've just completed And there are uh, technical answers I could give you. But at the heart of it, for me, was a desire to get away from the idea that creeps in to too much of our speech, that God acts differently as Redeemer from the way he's acted as Creator. Indeed, Isaiah 53 says that this is who God is in his very being. 